It is because He is holy that we approach Him with reverence. How wonderful it is to be able to be here this evening to worship God. Good evening if you're a guest. Uh, Again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. Uh, We'll be looking at several passages tonight. Perhaps the first one may be in Genesis, the fourth chapter, if you want to be turning there. If I could uh, just say a huge thank you to everyone who worked with Vacation Bible School. A huge thank you to all of our children uh, that not only participated in such a wonderful fashion, that was a great encouragement to us that we're working along with it, but also brought so many of their friends. And uh, we're thankful for our, our children, our youth, and all that were involved. Also, um, I know there's a lot of people that help and lead with Vacation Bible School, but we'd be amiss if we didn't give a big, huge thank you to Tim Martin. Uh, His first time to lead a Vacation Bible School, and uh, you wouldn't know it, uh, that it was the first time. He did a tremendous job. That's so much work. And I know there's several others that help him all throughout the whole year with this, but but still, uh, we appreciate Tim so much and the great ability that he has and the zeal in which he approaches uh, God's work. And I'm thankful for the opportunity we had to be with the teens this past week and for all the work that that Philip did uh, so many hours, day and night and long into the night, uh, putting together everything uh, with the teen VBS. And it was it was very, very enjoyable and a blessing to be with the teens this past week in that. And also, uh, we want to give a big thank you to Phil Wagner for flying back and helping us with Vacation Bible School. He's on the front right here. And uh, if you could have been here, you you saw that he worked throughout the morning here and then he would go over to the team and then he worked there and then he would come back and work here. And it was one of those things where we kind of found ourselves saying, what would we do if he hadn't come back? And uh, we're thankful for his willingness to be back. And uh, we love you, Phil. And we're thankful that you love us as a congregation. What a wonderful relationship we've shared for, for about a decade now. If you're planning on tending chisel tonight, Uh, Go ahead after services and get your things out of your vehicles and bring them somewhere, line them up somewhere in the foyer, out of the way, off to the side, and then uh, somewhere close to uh, before, not after, close before, or at least by 7.30, have your things inside and be in 100AB, which is right behind the library here out these doors. Uh, If you'll plan on being there by 7.30, and uh, we'll begin... Uh, then at that time. And we look so forward to Chisel. We ask you to be praying for us. Pray that great spiritual good would come out of our 48 hours together. Uh, pray in thanksgiving for the many individuals that have agreed to see us over the next few days. We always promise at least 12 stops. I think we may even have 14 this year. Uh, but people are gracious to us. They're always very willing. And, and what a blessing it is to be in the kingdom where people are willing to share their time, their heart, and their energy with us. And we're thankful for the young men that are investing in this time. This morning, we looked at worship, the aspect of singing, how God expects us to worship Him in song. It ought to be that tonight's lesson should not even be needed. It ought to be that it would never have to be addressed. But yet, it does need to be addressed. There are things that, because our frailty or maybe even weakness, or perhaps even rebellion, that we as people, humans, we make mistakes, and we get off course, and sometimes we bring things into worship that God never intended to be in the worship of His church. And so let's take a few moments tonight and 
and look at one of those. Not that this is a greater problem than maybe other problems that might be, but since we studied singing this morning, let's address the topic of the instrument. If we look back at the beginning of the church all the way 2,000 years ago, it's a relatively new problem. In other words, we've struggled with this as a church family for less years than what we haven't struggled with it. As a matter of fact, even though it may have been introduced every now and then after four, five, or six hundred years that the church existed, it really wasn't prevalent at all until after a thousand years that the church was in existence. It's been said that the organ may not have been brought into the worship services of any church that claimed to tie back to the New Testament until the 1300s. Now let that sink in. That would be like the church beginning today and saying, let's go to 3,012 would be a thousand years. How is it that we as a human race got off course? One thing's for certain, it wasn't quickly. It was a very difficult battle. And what's interesting is you can study denomination after denomination if you so chose to do so. And you could go back to the 1500s for maybe the Anglican church over in England and and the 1600s and the 1700s. And what you see are 100 and 150 and 200 year journeys where there are individuals that are clinging to the scriptures saying we can't go this route. There's no authority in the scriptures for this. But yet over a hundred and a two hundred year battle, many times they often depart. But let's begin tonight by saying, where are we? As a church, where are we? The Tennessean had an article back in November 9th of 2011 of a church that is relatively new, but wears the name uh, of association with the Church of Christ. And so I'll use this as an example since they chose to do an interview with the Tennessean and it was on the front page uh, on page one. Uh, Ethos, churches, mixture inspires. They moved to 1400 in size in three years and skipping down. And I'll try to be fair in the quotes. I'm not trying to misrepresent anything here, but we can't read the whole article. Skipping down, it describes the congregation and their fast growth. And it says, but the congregation uses instruments. A no-no in other churches of Christ who say early Christians didn't use them and neither should modern churches use them. And so they gather and it says most of their crowd are in their 20s and dress uh, in jeans and and um, they, they begin with Blessed Be Your Name, a popular contemporary Christian song, and it is accompanied by acoustic guitar. And it says, some weeks there's one instrument, sometimes a band with drums, sometimes a mandolin or a banjo. We always stress to our leaders that the focus of leading worship is not how cool the music is or how the band sounds, but on leading people to connect with God and eliminating distractions that would hinder that from happening, Shinnick says. And so they describe uh, some of their aspects of communion and uh, they describe their heavy emphasis on service and reaching out and making a, a positive difference in the lives of those who are in need. And then uh, it continues with uh, one young lady that describes her relationship with the church there, becoming a member there, and says she grew up in a conservative church of Christ and she never could connect, even though she grew up there and said, this is the first church I've ever been a part of, that now I actually invite people to church. And then 
uh, we see a description of this in their own words. Ethos is a part of an evolution in the way churches of Christ operate. In the past, churches of Christ have been fiercely independent and suspicious of working with other congregations out of fear of being part of a denomination. And skipping down, it says that others, such as Ethos, think that using instruments helps them draw new people in. And then one of the elders that helped in the establishment of this says this, having instruments in worship makes sense to Bob Wood an elder at Harpeth Hills Church of Christ, which helped fund Ethos early on. Woods and other elders also regularly consult with Clayton, who is, I believe, the preacher there. And he and his wife, Sydney, were members of Harpeth Hills before starting Ethos. I've been going to church all of my life, and this is the most exciting thing I've ever been involved in, Woods said. They are teaching us older folks about how God is calling us to serve. Is that a standard? Now, I realize that a reporter could misrepresent, and I'm trying very hard to not misrepresent. But if the reporter was accurate, there were two things that were said as to why they used the instrument. One is, we believe that this draws people in. And so we need to ask ourselves, is that authority? Does that give us the right to practice whatever it might be in worship if it draws people in. Because after all, we do want the church to grow. And we do want to be able to reach out to the lost. And so is that, is that a standard that is acceptable? And you remember a couple of weeks ago, we dealt a whole lot with the word acceptable. But remember, it always has to be acceptable to God. And then notice what the elder said when he says, it just makes sense. He never defined who it made sense to. And I'm not being disrespectful. But we must address this if we're going to be honest with God, with the scriptures, and with his church. It makes sense to whom? It draws people in based on what authority? It makes sense to guests. It makes sense to an elder that says, wow, we did it and it drew a lot of people in. And that's what we're really trying to do is draw people in. This makes sense. Tonight, I ask you to go back and begin at a place that we covered a few weeks ago. And then we won't be duplicating after that. But I would like for us to begin here. But I would also, as you do that, be looking back to Genesis, the fourth chapter. I'd like to give you just a quick illustration that if my mind will serve me correctly, we'll use it now and then we'll summarize with the same illustration in just a few moments. It made reference in the article that the churches of Christ make a plea to not be a denomination. That's very important because what we want to be is we want to be a member of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus said, before the church ever existed, he said, upon this rock, I will, future tense, build my ownership. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We come to Acts, the second chapter, and that church was established. Who owned that church? Jesus owned that church. Anyone that is a part of that church is a part of the saved and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If you're not a part of that church, we do not have that security that only Jesus can bring. And so now that church is established. Do you want to be a religious group 
that looks like that church? Do you want to be a religious group that talks like Jesus? Or do you want to be that church? Now, as you can imagine, there's so much running through my mind. I wish we had time to heavily develop Matthew, the 7th chapter right now, so that we see clearly that just because we cry out in the name of the Lord, Lord, that does not mean that we belong to the Lord. And in all of this, I'm not being disrespectful. I'm not taking joy in the fact that I or you or somebody else might be lost. I'm just trying to help us see that we have to deal with the reality that Jesus Christ has given us truth. And we either submit our life to his truth and become a part of his kingdom, or we join up with a denomination that says, okay, we are kind of like that, but we're not exactly like that. Well, what do you mean we're not like that? Well, you know, the Lord's church, the structure of it's a little bit rigid. Have you ever seen the qualifications for elders? We just don't do that in the denomination I'm a part of. I mean, how hard would it be to find men qualified to meet those? In our denominations, we've changed things around. Keep in mind, if you want to start your own church, you can do things any way you want. And so if you want to restructure your organization, you can restructure it any way you want. You can say, man, those qualifications for 1 Timothy 3 are tough. We're not going to have elders at all. Or we're not going to have deacons at all. Or we're going to let the role of women be whatever culture says is acceptable, not what God says is acceptable. We're going to allow the the homosexual agenda to infiltrate and, and we will adopt it as well as call ourselves Christians. And we're not concerned with whether or not someone is married, fornication. We're going to overlook that. We're not going to dissect people's personal lives. Do you see how we could go on and on? What about the worship, which is the topic tonight? Please get this. I want to tell you something profound. And it goes all the way back to Genesis, the first chapter, where it says, Each seed produces seed after its kind. I won't tell you anything tonight probably more profound than this. In Genesis 1, God said, I'm going to make sure that every seed produces seed after its kind. You ready for this? In the Garden of Eden... If that really was a perfect place to live, it had to have watermelon in it. And that watermelon had seed. And you know, you know what that seed produced when Adam and Eve planted it? It produced a watermelon. And they planted it again, and you know what the next seed produced? It produced watermelon. Now, are you ready for this? Out of the billions and zillions of watermelon seeds that have been planted over the last many thousands of years, there has never been an exception. Every watermelon seed, if it produced any fruit at all, it produced watermelon every time. The Word of God, God says, is a seed. When we plant the Word of God, it grows nothing but Christians, unless you mix it and make it another seed. If you alter it, if you take away from it, if you add to it. And that's why he so strongly condemns. If you take away, I'll take your name out of the book of life. If you add to it, I'll add plagues to your life. Why? God says, don't mess with my seed. Why? It is building, producing the fruit of Christians. Nothing more and nothing less. Christians. And that seed also grows a church. It grows a church that's organized the exact same way when that seed was first planted in Acts, the second chapter, it grew a church. It grows the same church today, the same worship today, 
The same plan of salvation today, the same doctrine of the Godhead and of heaven and of eternity and the day of judgment, all of those things are the same. And the only way they can be different is if somebody plants a different seed. And so now we're back to authority. Authority. If it draws people, is it okay to change the seed? If it just makes sense to an elder, is it okay to change the seed? Genesis, the fourth chapter, Cain got a rude awakening into being one of the early members of the human race. Genesis 1 was the introduction of God. Genesis 2, an introduction to mankind. Genesis 3, an introduction of Satan, our enemy. And Genesis 4, an introduction into worship. And we see in Genesis 4 and verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. In other words, he's bringing an offering and of its fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now, we know that God had told them what they needed to bring in an offering because in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, it says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Cain and Abel knew what God expected of them. Abel brought what God expected and he was blessed and his sacrifice was blessed. But you remember verse five, but he did not respect Cain and his offering and Cain was very angry and his counsel as fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, in other words, can you just go back and plant the seeds in your life? I've told you exactly what sacrifice it is. You know, Cain, if you'll just take the seed that I've given you, the word of God, and if you will just plant it in your life, and if you will submit to it, you're going to do well and things are going to be good. What you are envious of right now in your brother's life, you can have that. All he's doing is living by faith. Are you willing to do that? And you remember that, that even the, the warning was given in seven. If you do well, will you not be, here it is, will you not be accepted? Accepted by whom? If you do well, don't you know that all the guests are going to accept you? If you do well, don't you know that an elder is going to accept you? I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm simply not trying to make a point. You won't ever find in the scriptures the authority for the way you live your life, for the church conducts its life based upon what will draw the most people. The authority is never, has an elder said it's okay, where God pulls his hands back and says, oh, well, if an elder said it, I'm going to change my mind. Notice, clearly the acceptance is God. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if not, do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you and you should rule over it. Now, we sometimes call this dispensation of time the patriarchal age, meaning that fathers led the families and God spoke apparently directly to the fathers. Let's go to the very next dispensation of time and let's go over to Leviticus, the 10th chapter. This is, by the way, we just left the beginning of the patriarchal age, a scene of worship. Now we're going to go to the beginning of the Mosaic age and another scene of worship. By this time, God had given Moses the law and he had also told Moses how he was so, supposed to set up a Levitical priesthood. And his brother Aaron was going to be the high priest. And so his sons were going to be the priest. And so now we have what I assume. Now, you can't take this as, as Bible. I'm just going to give you an opinion on this. I believe that one of the reasons God dealt so severely with Nadab and Abihu was because it was the very beginning of this Levitical priesthood. And he literally was saying to all of the Levitical people, here's your example. 
You decide that, that just as we sung a while ago about the holiness of God, you decide that, that you're equal with God. And when God gives you a law, you want to call the shots yourself and you think you can substitute some things. Oh, God wants me to burn some incense. God wants me to get the incense from here and and he wants me to get the fire from here. Hey, the most important thing is just get some fire. And so he reaches over with a big lighter and he gets some kind of strange fire. And he says, that's fine. That's fine. God says, I want to prove to all the Levitical tribe that it's not fine when I give a law. For you to think you can substitute something for it. So here's how the story goes. We're in Leviticus, the 10th chapter, verse 1. Uh, we got two brothers, uh, Nadab and Abihu. I'm looking forward to meeting the couple that lays, names their two children that. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. You think just by that wording there that authority is important? Hey, Nadab and Abihu, where did you get that fire? Didn't God say to get the fire from here? And didn't you get the fire from there? What's it matter? Little fire here, little fire there. Hey, didn't God not command that? Have you heard people say, well, God said, God never said that you couldn't do it. You know, probably the source where they got the fire God probably never said, you can't get it from there. God said, you get it from here. He doesn't have to tell all the places not to get it. When we talk about authority, our obedience to God is to be as restrictive as the command is. And so when God said, I want you to get the fire from this location, the fire was to be gotten from that location. So notice, notice the result of this. In verse 2, so the fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. That's right. If you're understanding this, you say, what? He just killed them. They died before the Lord. Now notice, notice this. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying. Now, before I read this, I want to take your minds back to Isaiah the 6th chapter. I'll remind you of that lesson where we talked about that God is not our buddy. God is not our human peer. And so we have God Almighty. He has just struck two sons down. And you can imagine any of us fathers would have probably given a hard look up to heaven. And here's what God sends down through Moses to tell Aaron. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. God's holy. The fire was profane. God's holy. The actions were profane. Well, what did they do? They just substituted. Instead of getting the fire one place, they got the fire another place. And God says, that's what I'm talking about. God is not a beggar. He does not say just anything you want to offer me in worship. I'm just this poor guy and I have my can and I'm shaking it. And if you want, if you want to just throw a little bit of this or a little bit of that, whatever you want. I know I've given very specific commands. Don't worry about it. if you add to them. Don't worry about it if you take away. No, God 
is very much concerned. Why? Because God wants what's right and best for us. And whenever we start trailing our own path, we're always leading to a place that is not good. It gets us off the course of spirituality and it gets us into a wrong environment for life. And so God is making a point for the children of Israel. I would guess that after this, probably the rest of the priests were much more careful for a good while about whether or not they obeyed God. Now, when we turn, if you will, to Numbers, the 10th chapter, I'd like for you to see in Numbers, the 10th chapter, just we're just going to show you one or two examples. And and there's several more in the scriptures. But in Numbers, the 10th chapter, we do see instruments being brought into the temple worship in Numbers 10. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work and you shall use them for calling the congregation for directing the movement of the camps. So there they were going to be like signals being used. That's not necessarily, that's not worship at all. But look, look down in verse 10. Also in the day of your gladness and your appointed feast and in the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Now take notice there. He's blowing the the trumpets as the burnt offerings. That's animal sacrifices were being made. If we had time to read a lot of Numbers the 11th, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, the 11th chapter, the 12th chapter, and, and perhaps a little bit into the 13th chapter, we see that not only uh, similar writings of instruments, but now here's what's important. Each time God tells the exact instrument he wants played at the exact time, even by the exact people that he wants it to play it. I want this particular family to play it. And I want it to be this particular instrument. And I want it to be at this particular time. And what you'll notice when you read through, the times are associated with the offerings. If any of you have ever slaughtered livestock, the sound's not always pretty. Isn't it interesting at the time that the offering was being made was the time that the trumpet was to be sounded as if you were covering up the noise of the dying animal. And then if you've ever smelled the fresh blood in the intestines of an animal and especially the burning of an animal in a burnt offering, although God calls it a sweet smelling sacrifice, there's not anybody here that would call it that. And so isn't it interesting that the burning of incense is also associated with the times of the offerings? What's the point? The point is that the instrument in the Old Testament was tied to the point of the offerings in the temple. Even when you come over to the latter end of the Old Testament, especially the beginning of the New Testament, by the beginning of the New Testament, we see synagogues. Have you ever wondered why why is there no instrument in the synagogue? There's no sacrifice being made in the synagogue. You could go into Nashville to the Greek Orthodox Church and you can say, hey, you guys, you, you still follow a lot of the old covenant stuff, right? And they say, sure we do, except they're also experts in Greek. And you could say, okay, if you follow some of the Old Testament stuff, why don't you have the instruments that are mentioned in the Old Testament in your worship? Why do you worship in acapella? And they would say, you know the answer to that. There's no sacrifices being made here. This isn't the temple. Therefore, we're not to have the instrument. The Old Testament temple was an antitype or a symbolism, if you will, of the Messiah's temple that is to come. 
You probably know the Messiah's temple, but just in case, let's read it. Isaiah, the second chapter. The Messiah's temple. And and if you're thinking, what does he mean by that? You remember Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah was going to bring a temple. And you remember, he looked at the earthly temple and he even made reference to the fact that, that there, it, there's not going to be a stone left on top of the other. But then he says, in three days, I'll build it back. What is he building back? He's talking about a fleshly, a, a spiritual, he's talking about a spiritual temple. Well, let's see what this spiritual temple is going to be. You see in, in Ephesians, the second chapter, look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, you were uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Now think about how far off the Gentiles were, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So what brought the Gentiles closer? to God. Look in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' death was going to bring about a place for the Gentiles. The Messiah's temple was going to be the first time that the Gentiles were welcome inside the temple. They weren't welcome inside the temple under the old covenant. And and let's get a picture of this in 19 and 20. Still the same chapter, Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles. That's the apostles teaching and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The church, the church is the Messiah's temple. Jesus Christ, we just read, was the blood sacrifice that was offered in Hebrews would say once and for all. It's not offered over and over and over again. So therefore, there's no need for an instrument to cover up the cry of an animal or even of our Lord being sacrificed time and time again. Now, we don't have time to heavily develop this, but if if I say this and you have questions, please let me know and we can sit down and study this further. We didn't divide the Bible into an Old Testament and a New Testament. God did that because they are distinctly two Testaments. The old was fulfilled by Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And the new covenant, if you remember last Sunday when we studied the Lord's Supper, Jesus said the cup was to remind us of that covenant, that promise that was made. That covenant was paid for by the blood of Jesus. The New Testament that you hold, it was paid for by the blood of Jesus where you're saying, Lord, I will submit to your authority. God, how do you want your church to be structured? And here at Mount Juliet, we just want to be a part of your church. We'll submit to you. God, how do you want your church to worship? And see, it's all a seed. The word of God is the seed. You take and you plant that seed and it grows the same thing over and over. Whether it's the first generation or if it's 2012 or if it's 3012, it's going to produce the same seed. Look with me, if you will, to Matthew, the 21st chapter. In Matthew, the 21st chapter, I know we've got to start wrapping this up. In Matthew, the 21st chapter, I'd like for you to look with me at at a discussion that the chief priest had with Jesus. 
You know, oftentimes the chief priests were very misleading because they were calculating, trying to figure out a way to get rid of Jesus, the only perfect man, the only time the Messiah has ever walked on this earth in flesh, and they were always trying to kill him. But they did make a good point in 23 when they asked this question. In 23, now when he came, Jesus came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, here's a golden question, by what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This morning, someone walks in and sees you partaking of the Lord's Supper. By what authority are you doing this and who gave you that authority? Oh, let me, let me show you. I'd love to teach you about what Jesus taught us for supper. Somebody walks in right now and says, what in the world are you doing? Why is there a man standing up and preaching out of the Word of God? What authority do you have to do that? Who gave you that authority? Hey, can we study with you about how God wants us to have preaching and teaching? Somebody sees us taking a collection up on Sunday morning. But what authority do you do these things? Who gave you that authority? We'd love to study with you. We can study 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 16. We'd love to study with you. They hear us singing. What authority do you do these things? Who gave you that authority? Could we study with you out of Ephesians 5 and 19, Colossians 3 and 16? We'd love to study with you about the singing of God's Word. Someone comes in and they see an instrument. What authority do you do this? And who gave you this authority? Where's the verse? Where's the verse... We're in Christ's covenant, in the Messiah's temple, that the instrument is to be a part of worship. In Solomon's temple, it was told exactly who would play, exactly what, exactly when. In the Messiah's temple, the command every time is to sing. The only answer someone can give is, well, we did that. We feel like that'd be a great way to bring people in. Wait a minute, you mean we did that as in Nadab and Abihu taking and saying, oh, we'll just use this fire, it's no big deal, we'll put it right here. You mean we did that as in Cain saying, well, I know what God asked, but this is what I'd rather have? Let's read the rest of this and notice how it's just, it's just amazing how we struggle as a human race with true submission. Verse 25, this is what they were talking about. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And that's what Jesus said. And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men... We fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you see what they were doing right there? They knew they were caught in what we would call a catch-22. Okay, why have we not been baptized by John's baptism? Where is it from? If we answer Jesus and say, well, we know it's from heaven, then it's going to be, why aren't you doing it? But if we say, well, really we're doing it, and it's not, then the men are going to say, 
Why? They're not going to like the fact, or then they say, well, we will obey that baptism. And then the people are going to say, we don't like that. Isn't it interesting that it reveals our human nature? That the authority for why they did it came down, not to whether or not it was from God, but it was whether or not it's what man on earth wanted. When someone says to you, why did you guys take the instrument out of worship? I want to close with just a couple of things here. And what I'm about to close with is not nearly as important as what we just covered. What we just covered is Bible. But what's interesting is how many people think we took the instrument out of worship and the instrument was never in the worship of the New Testament church. And it took a thousand years before it became pretty much kind of common. And then it really took a lot more years before it was common. And most of the denominations around that think that the instrument has always been in their denomination, it hasn't been in their denomination. Let me give you a couple examples. John Calvin, he's the founder of the Presbyterian Church. So most Presbyterians probably think that the instrument's been in their church all along. Well, here's what, here's what their founder would say. Musical instruments in celebrating the praise of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. You see, they went through a long battle where it was a fight of, are we going to give up the authority of the Scriptures, and are we going to bring in something that is no authority in the Scriptures for it? And finally, the no authority won out. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. I have no opposition to the organ in our chapel, provided it is neither seen nor heard. But yet most Methodists probably believe today that the instrument's always been it. It hasn't, because it's a relatively new thing that it is accepted as common practice. Charles Spurgeon, who's the most famous Baptist preacher to ever live, he quoted 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, and he said, I'll pray with the Spirit, I'll pray with the understanding also, I'll sing with the Spirit, and I'll sing with the understanding also. And then he said, I would as soon pray to God with machinery as to sing to God with machinery. And so... This evening, I know there are a lot of people that say, I'm fine worshiping in a church that doesn't have the instrument, but to be honest with you, I don't see a lot wrong with it. When God gives a command, our responsibility and submissiveness is to be as an obedient to the command in a specific as the command itself is. If God would have said make music. We could sing, play with an instrument, have only an instrument, have an orchestra. But what if God says, no, I don't just want music. I want singing. Then our obedience needs to be that specific. When God told Noah to build an ark, he didn't have a choice of what kind of vessel to make. It had to be an ark because it was specific. And when he told him what to make it out of, if he would have just said make it, he could have used anything. But when he said wood, he could have used any kind of wood. But when he said go for wood, now it's that specific. When God said put the blood of a lamb, a firstborn lamb without blemish on the doorpost and death will pass over your house. If he would have just said put blood, you could put any blood. If he would have just said blood of a lamb, you could put any lamb. But he said blood 
of a firstborn lamb without blemish. So it had to be blood of a firstborn lamb without blemish. If the silence of the scriptures does not have authority, the scriptures do not have authority. I beg you. Look carefully and deeply into the scriptures to see what the authority of God's will is before you casually say, I'm not really concerned about what we bring into worship. We don't get but four stories into the Bible where God says, I want to show you, I don't accept just anything in worship. And we see it over and over and over again. Why? Because as God told Moses to tell Aaron, He says, I'm holy. We cannot bring profane or common things into the Messiah's house and please Him. Tonight, I don't know if a lesson like that would stir you to want to respond to the Lord's invitation, but we close every lesson by, respond, by offering a response to the Lord's invitation. I hope you see within this lesson our great and overwhelming desire is to simply please God. There's not anybody here perfect, but I can tell you we have a really good plea. Our plea is we want to go back and submit to God in everything. That's it. Nothing more and nothing less. And so this evening, if you come forward and say, I want to become a Christian, we're just going to open the Word of God if you need to learn more about that and we're going to see what God said about becoming a Christian. If you said, I want to be a part of His church, we're just going to open up the Word and say, what is His church? Let's just become a part of it. And so tonight, if that's what you're looking for in life, is a relationship with God and with God's people that are just trying to help each other get to heaven, We'd love to help you. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.